Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Our first scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 9 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offsprings, your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The second reading is from 1 John chapter 1 starting in verse 5 through chapter 2 verse 3. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the perpetuation for our sins, and not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. As by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and I guess welcome to after Christmas, you know, like an after party. It's the day after Christmas, and... I hope you had a fun time. Was it good? Get some good gifts, kids? I hope so. It's a fun time to be sure. You know, now we find ourselves the day after Christmas. And maybe you, like me, as I mentioned even in our our compound service on Friday, I've been finding, I guess, naturally, given what's been happening to us this last year, or almost three years, really, I guess I've been, you know, finding the cynicism come back to me a little bit. And 
and uh, asking the question with all this singing about Christmas and how great it is and how everything's changed because Jesus has come. Come on now. I find myself thinking sometimes, really? I mean, what's really changed? You know, look around. Uh, I won't repeat what I know we all know. And so I've been, you know, reflecting on that a lot in my own devotions and prayers and, and crying out to God for, for, for him and his presence. And I find myself um, thinking about this incredible promise that Jesus was born and the very fact of his birth becoming flesh enabled him to do a very specific and special ministry that I think we really don't think about a lot. And that ministry is advocacy. Christ, our advocate. I mean, I want you to think about the human yearning. We're in this last of the sermon series, um, Desires Fulfilled. And wouldn't we all desire, when it comes down to it, some super advocate? I mean, is there anything you desire more, honestly, if you stop to think about it, than an advocate, a friend, someone who believes in you and who has your back and who defends you, who advocates for you when you need to flourish, who might gently correct you when you are in need of redirection is from the vantage point of the bigger picture, but also someone who has a great influence. This is the key, an advocate who has great influence over the great powers in your life. I mean, just think about it. What are those powers that sometimes we fear? Maybe it's the insider market trader to help your financial situation. Oh, if I could just get that insider information, who would advocate for that? Insider political maker to make laws that favor, and we know in this day and age, my demographic, my tribe, an advocate. Maybe it's an insider friend of that girl or boy that I'm hoping to go out with. Maybe my friend could advocate for me and, and open that door for me to have that date. You could go on and on. Perhaps it's a president or owner of a company that you seek to work with. Maybe it's a person that's um, bent against you, that is your adversary, that is slandering you or hurting you or, or oppressing you. Who will defend you? You see... When it comes to it, this idea of having an advocate, a friend, someone who's got your backside, someone who believes in you, who loves you, and who will advocate for you. I mean, who is that person? Who is it that you need? Now think about it. Who is the Lord over all the powers that I just alluded to? Who is the ultimate power over all those powers that I just listed? Well, you know I'm going to say God. I mean, really, quite literally, we know that God is Lord of all. That he actually controls these people. That he actually controls the situations that are going on in your life. That he decrees all things whatsoever that come to pass. That by his providence, we know God is reigning sovereign. These are things we say we believe. And if we didn't believe them, God wouldn't be God. 
But if God is God, then now we need an advocate with God. We need someone who God listens to. Imagine that. We need someone who God listens to and someone who's got our back. This is a long tradition of a God thought of like this. I think of Job chapter 12 and it says, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God holds the balance of life in his hands. Wouldn't you want someone to advocate on your behalf to this God? Daniel 5 says it this way, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and wood and stone, that is giving power to things which really don't have power, the things that I just listed a minute ago, which do not see or they do not hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Acts picks this up in chapter 17. And he quotes it again, in him we live and move and have our being. And so today I want us to consider the meaning that Christ birth in order that he could be your advocate and mine, a desire fulfilled. But with that, let's pray. So Father, we thank you for this time when we want to step back and reflect on what it really means that you sent your son on earth in our flesh to be present among us. And today, Lord, we pray that you would awaken us to this great human desire for an advocate, especially an advocate before God on our behalf. And so we pray to you, God, show us your appointed advocate. Help us to understand why you listen to him. For us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, this tradition of advocacy, while the Old Testament word for advocate or the Hebrew word is not found in the Old Testament, the concept is all through it. This concept of advocacy is found, for instance, when Abraham intercedes with God on behalf of Sodom in Genesis 18. Moses, as we heard today, intercedes with God on behalf of of the Israelites in Exodus 32. Samuel intercedes with God on behalf of the children of Israel in 1 Samuel 7. I could go on. David and others. But there was none like Moses. They all paled compared to Moses and the way in which Moses is honored as our prophet advocate. We see this particularly in the prayer that you just heard. Did you hear that prayer? Did you listen to what was going on there? I mean, this is the context where Moses is, is up on the holy mountain and he's receiving God's kingdom order and law in order that the people would flourish that he has taken out of and just set free from Egypt with signs and wonders and miracles. And while he's up there, we're told the people grow impatient and they begin to make idols. And they begin, which is to say, they begin to convert to ancient Canaan religion. They're converting in so many ways. Even holding to the name of God or Yahweh, they begin to worship in the manner in which the Canaanites worshiped. 
This was highly offensive to God. The very people he created, the very people who were stiff-necked, as he described. And with that original sin, you know the original sin, right? The original sin that begets all sins is what? It's rejecting God, the creator. The mover and shaker of all things, remember? To reject the one in whom we move and breathe and have our being is to reject our life. The penalty is death. A curse we bring upon ourselves in that original sin. And that is exactly the context where we find Moses now up on that mountain interceding, interceding for these stiff-necked and rebellious people. Did you hear what he did? It's beautiful, really, the prayers. First, this appeal that the people of Israel are God's own people. He, re- he goes to God and he says, God, let me remind you of the great promises you gave these people. These are your children. Relent. He goes on to say, why should your anger burn against your own people whom you brought out of Egypt? And second, he appeals to God's character. He appeals to the name of God. Why should the Egyptians say it it was with evil intent that they brought them out? In other words, God, don't do this. This will not reveal your great and merciful character to the world. It is not to your interest, God. Not to your interest. I mean, the boldness of this advocacy. It's incredible. Third, he turns to the prayer itself. Turn away from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster upon these people. And finally, he appeals to God's promises to the patriarchs. You remember, God, what you said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't break your promises, do you? You can't break your promises. Can you, can you understand why Moses was so loved? To see their savior figure, Moses, up there on the mountain, advocating for them? Is that your notion of Jesus? Well, it should be. And I mean quite literally, it should be. You may know that Moses himself knew he was self-aware that what he was doing and being as a prophet was only to foreshadow, was only to give type to that ultimate Moses, that second Moses that would be the ultimate advocate and prophet. Listen to Moses' own words in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own brothers. The word became flesh. You hear it? And you must listen to him. For I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to an account. You see Moses here speaking the word of God to the people about himself and how he was foreshadowing one to come. We pick up then with this this birth narrative in John and we hear this. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, says Christ in his first ministry. 
because he wrote about me. That's John 5, 46. And then John, the narrator, describes those who were believing in Christ. And here's how he described them. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. That's how he described those who are believing in him as finding this second Moses. We see allusions to Moses in Acts chapter 3 verse 22. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. This is, of course, the great sermon at Pentecost reminding the people that you have found this Moses. How many times have you thought about this? Really? I mean, it's everywhere. I could read now in Acts chapter 7. It comes up again. I could tell you that, that, that the book of, of uh, Matthew, it's carefully choreographed so as to the whole book of Matthew is carefully choreographed so that you would see Moses as a type of the Christ. I mean, let me just point out a few things that will might ring you know, true to you about this. Like the infant Moses, the infant Jesus experienced and attempted on his life by a ruler bent on preserving his own kingdom. Read those two stories and they're almost identical. Like Moses fleeing from Pharaoh, Jesus was forced to flee into Egypt for safety from the wrath of, of God, I mean, from the wrath of Herod and emerged from there to deliver his people. Moses returned from his desert sojourn with his wife and sons in Egypt and Joseph returned with his wife and sons from Egypt to Israel. It's like a great fulfillment motif going through here. Moses would deliver the Israelites from bondage to Pharaoh, employing signs and miracles, and Jesus would deliver his people from the power of the greater oppressor, Satan, which if you've read through the Old Testament, Egypt becomes identified with Satan, displaying his miraculous sounds. You see, I could go on and on. They both fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before God up on a mountain. Moses ascended to the Mount Sinai to receive the Decalogue. Jesus ascends to the mountain to bring forth a new law where he would say over and over, you have heard it said, but I tell you. It's incredible that God wrote and wove into the scripture that Jesus is this incredible Moses type. Many scholars will call this this term, this idea of, of Jesus being this Moses type, the, the uh, Moses recividus, and that's the word for Moses anew. Moses knew Moses, that is. Well, I hope you're getting the idea. And that brings us then to our passage as we think about the meaning of Christ's birth. There is an advocate and his advocacy is very much patterned after the type that we see in Moses. And so when we read Moses' intercession, it makes us think now of Jesus, the second Moses. Out of our passage, Old Testament is meant to powerfully, you see, illustrate the unique advocacy of Moses fulfilled in Christ. And not just any advocacy, but the type that makes the difference in life. The type that will actually dispel God's anger, God's wrath, his curse upon you and me. 
And so turn to this passage, particularly I want to read again, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Early theologians such as Tertullian and Augustine, they interpreted this Greek word into the Latin, and the Latin word was, was advocatus, advocatus, for advocate, of course. So real quickly, five observations. You can take them down if you want, in this passage particularly. Number one, notice how this passage acknowledges that while we endeavor not to sin, that we have and will continue to sin as Christians. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The New Testament's message of grace is not morally indifferent. The gospel calls us to leave sin. And if that was the sole message of the letter, that leaves sin, that would be a valid and appropriate summons. To leave sin is to lead, leave the curse, to leave that which will curse you. It's love for God to command you not to sin. It's not egotistical. It's love for God to set you free from those things which destroy you. If that were the whole purpose of the book, it would be still a worthy purpose to convince us not to sin. To sin is a very harmful and horrible thing. It's what makes everything you hate about this world, why we hate it. And yet, notice secondly, that while sin is an, to not sin is an imperative, there's this acknowledgement right alongside of it that when we sin, the assumption being, of course, that we will sin. In fact, he's backed that up earlier because he said, if you say you have no sin, you'd just be lying and covering up. So when you sin, and everyone will, we have an advocate. We have someone who's got your back. That's so incredible. I think of Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. The same concept here. Notice again, that both passages here speak of God, I mean Christ, advocating for us. Last week we heard this word advocacy used again. This idea of exhorting, this crying out, pleading with. God here in Christ is pleading with God the Father. With a sense of urgency and power. This advocate. And so we have this friend. This friend that's got God's ear, that God will listen to. And why is that? Well, notice both in Romans passage I just referenced, but also here in this passage, there is a reference to something that Christ did, which is incredibly important. Unlike any other death in all of the universe, this was none other than the death of the God, human, come together 
that makes it an eternal and sufficient death to satisfy. There's this really important word I just used, to satisfy God's wrath. This word propitiation is the word to satisfy, to exhaust, to extinguish it. It's as if, you know, I had this picture in my head of some kind of a, a, a superhero kind of story and the heavens open up and this huge wrath of, of, of flame and fire comes pouring down upon the earth and it hits, say, this superhuman and all of this fire and all of this wind and all of this destruction dissolves into this superhuman wherein he remains alive and the wrath out of heaven has been exhausted. Do you have that picture in your mind? I'm giving it to you in a visual way. Again, maybe Spider-Man will show it to you if you go to the movie, I don't know. But we got somebody real here. We got somebody real here that literally exhausts or satisfies the justifiable wrath of God. Wrath is just another term in our culture for judgment, for justice. God's justice, extinguished, satisfied, placated, whatever you want to use, upon this unique human man. The word became flesh and was present among us. And this allows Christ uniquely to then advocate on our behalf and the basis of his advocacy is he can say, God, I satisfied your justice for you on behalf of them. I took it. I took it. It's all gone. There's no wrath remaining. Now, all of this was foreshadowed. The very Moses who was, who was pleading with God advocating for people was the very Moses that God would tell then to set up and establish a temple very carefully choreographed so that there would be propitiation. We call that the mercy seat. It's the seat of propitiation. It's this great ark that was sitting in the, in the back, back of this great temple where there would be a sacrifice and it would be ugly and it would be burnt with the fire and when it, when it was after it had been burnt up and the flame goes out, it would say, in the Hebrew way, that there has been a propitiation for sin. God's justice has been poured out and it has satisfied itself. That's what is going on in this third observation. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, one who is without sin, who is the propitiation for our sins. Isn't that cool? This is what this Christmas is about. Think about it. He was born to live our life that he might be able to genuinely sympathize with us, to genuinely have empathy for us. He was born to suffer the curse that we brought upon ourselves under God's justifiable justice and wrath. He was born to be raised as one of us so that he could be the first fruits of our resurrection after wrath was satisfied into a newness of life. And he was born to sympathize with us, to suffer for us, and be raised for us, all so that he could ascend now back into heaven, 
and advocate for us the Father. I call this in the uh, Latin terms that theologians use, this historia salutis. This is the lost historia salutis. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this historical event that describes the life of Christ. The historical order, this order of historical events. He was born, he lived perfectly righteous, he was, he was put to death, he, was, he died, he was raised from the dead. And what do we do there? We tend to just go right on and he's going to come again. And we totally miss this incredibly important ministry that Christ wants us to know about. No. Before he comes again, it says what? And he ascended into heaven. And in John, he describes that very carefully so that we would know, even in John 17, where Jesus is advocating for us, we got the prayer of Jesus right there. The prayer that he's taken to Christ, to his Father in heaven. Go back today, sometime today maybe, or for your next devotion, and read John 17. Read the advocacy of Christ for you. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase, oh Lord, bring them together, protect them from evil. Don't discard them. Love them as though you've loved me. Let them be one as we are one. On and on and on it goes. You see his advocacy all through these discourses on this last week as he's saying and talking about him going and ascending into heaven. And so we have this incredible, amazing advocate here. And what are the terms of this advocacy? What are the terms? I mean, is it like a politician who goes for six years or four years? Or, I mean, what, how, 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 many, how long will he last for you? And you could ask the question another way. You kind of heard it today. How many sins? Is there, okay, three strikes are out? Ten strikes are out? A hundred strikes are out? hundred thousand strikes are out? <laughs> you know, a million strikes are out? How many? How long will he last in terms of being your advocacy? Did you hear it? He said forever. Again, Romans, as, as your sins increase, so Christ's grace increases. There is no boundary. There is no limit to this grace where your sin abounds even, my grace abounds all the more, said Paul about this grace. And so, no, this is not an advocate that gets frustrated with you. It's not an advocate that reaches a certain number and says, I've had enough. It's an advocate that you can always, always count on, no matter how bad it's gotten, no matter how much you have struggled. You can cry out to your, your Savior, Jesus Christ, and you can say, help. You really don't need to say a whole lot more than that. Sometimes that's all that can come out of your mouth. Do you know that feeling? I do. Just help. I need your help. God will bring us to that place perhaps that we might discover our need for help. Notice what the scriptures teaches about this amazing reason for you to trust Jesus as we bring this to a close. 
We can trust this Christ, our advocate, because he came to live under the same covenant contract of our very existence under the lordship of God, our Savior, to live our righteousness in ways that we could not. Galatians says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born, there's that birth of a woman, born under the law. Another passage says, he became sin. That is, he became the one who who was the recipient of the curse as if he sinned. There's this imputation, this crediting of, of sin to him that he might suffer under it. And boy, did he suffer. You can trust Jesus to be your advocate because he knows your sufferings. He knows the curse of sin. He has suffered it with you. Number two, we can trust that Christ, our advocate, because he came to live our life and to suffer at the curses, even the ultimate curse that are, or the curse, of course, of being abandoned in hell, we can trust him to experience and to satisfy the fullness of our curse or our justice against us. You see what I'm saying? Let me read it here. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How far did he go? He never once sinned. And yet he went as far to suffer few as to go to hell itself. There is no greater suffering than to be abandoned by your own God, which makes hell itself hell. We can trust that Christ, our advocate, became man who suffered under the curse of our sin as he himself had sin and we can trust that this advocacy can also then sympathize with us in our suffering Hebrews 4 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who is every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin and finally we can trust our advocate because he came he suffered our sufferings he exhausted God's wrath upon himself. He absorbed it. And still to be raised now from the dead, he has new life. We know his advocacy is powerful unto new life for us that God granted him so it would be granted to us. Well, let me just um, close then with a little bit of a, just a, a reflection about what this might mean for us. I mean, I want you right now just to consider your life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude towards the darkness that might be in your life? Do you think he's uninterested? Do you think he cares? Do you think he's willing to get involved and get messy with you? Think about that. That's the whole purpose of his ascension. To go up there on a mission to advocate for you. Maybe you are experiencing an over-dependence in alcohol. Maybe you lost your temper time and time again and you're struggling with your sin of temper. Maybe the bitterness you harbor towards someone, even someone who Christ loved and died for, but you harbor resentment towards them. Maybe it's the obsessive people-pleasing that looks to others like in order to find your worth and your, and your sense of identity, and your sense of purpose, Maybe it's habitual pornography. 
Maybe it's the constant rationalization of your materialism, even if in the form of love of money and savings accounts or love of experience and travel, love of bigger or better things for yourself and for your home. Maybe you are obsessed with idols made by gold and bronze and silver, in the words of the prophets. I mean, I could go on. You don't, don't you think? I probably didn't hit all of your sins. I know there are many more. Now, think about that. Think about how you have an advocate that you can cry out to and say, Jesus, I need your help. I need your power. I need you to defend me against those who are coming at me. I need you. I don't need, you would be repenting in this act of self-defense. You'd be repenting of self-help. You'd be repenting of all these sort of things that almost have become virtues because you would recognize that of all the powers that are in your world and all the forces that are bringing you maybe harm, whether it's forces that tempt you to sin or forces, etc., that sin against you, then in all of these powers, there's only one who holds the balance of your life in his hand. And there's only one, there's only one who he listens to, ultimately. We often end our prayers, you know, in Jesus' name I pray, becomes almost a pious formula. But think about it the next time you pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Think about what that invokes, what's happening in heaven, based on what we've said. I want to read uh, a little bit of a quote from John Bunyan. You may know John Bunyan, who, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. He also wrote a treatise on, on uh, Christ's advocacy. Let me just read it here. Christ gave for us the price of blood, that that is not all. Christ as a captain has conquered death in the grave for us, but that is not all. Christ as a priest intercedes for us in heaven, but that is not all. Sin is still in us and with us and mixes itself with whatever we do, whether what we do religiously or civilly. For not only our prayers and our sermons and our hearings and our preachings, but our houses and our shops, our trades and, all, and our beds, all are polluted with sin. We call that total depravity. It's systemic in every aspect of our life, he says. Nor does the devil, our night and day adversary, forbear to tell our bad deeds to our father, urging that we might forever be disinherited for this. Ever thought about that? The devil, you know, snitching on you with God. But what should we now do, he says, if we had not an advocate, yes. If we had not one who could bleed, yes. If we had not one that could prevail on our behalf and that would faithfully execute that office for us, yes. Why? We must die if we don't have this. Why, he says, we must die. But since we are rescued by him, let us, as to ourselves, lay our hand upon our mouth and be silent. Let that sink in. Quit striving. Quit blame shifting. 
Quit defending yourself, proving yourself. Be silent and let your Lord speak for you. You can do that right now. You can ask him to be your advocate right now. He will hear you and he will give you the power to believe. And if you are struggling in a sin right now that's got you overwhelmed or struggling in a power confrontation right now, you can speak the name of Jesus and be silent. Just be still and try just for a moment to imagine him up in heaven speaking to his father the way that Moses spoke to his father and even more. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.